A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 119 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman. And with me more than Zess's shirt, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. That's right. 119 episodes, and I haven't been fired yet. And I'm pretty sure the way that you were supposed to pronounce uh, Zesh, because you'll probably hear in bloopers if he adds them to the end, that he just had a lot of time, a lot of trouble trying to say Zesh. Um, I think the correct pronunciation is Tau. Tau. <laughs> <laughs> that's the correct pronunciation. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Ta-da, Tao! <laughs> well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore the final arc of the Dawn of the Jedi era, Force War by John Ostrander. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Right. And this one, uh, I kind of want to introduce here, since this is going to be something that uh, uh, would come up otherwise within the discussion, we can get it out of the way to begin with, um, that this series has finally taken care of those chronological issues that existed with Dawn of the Jedi. You may recall that the original date for Dawn of the Jedi, for all the Dawn of the Jedi stories, they weren't quite sure when to put it. Um, we basically got a first arc for Storm that instead of telling us when the main story took place, it had a notation that basically said when the flashback type things at the very beginning took place, because it started in the far past and then jumped forward several times until we got to the actual story. So that kind of left things up in the air for a while. And uh, the dates that we were given were basically based on the Old Republic's website, because the Old Republic MMO focuses a big part of it on Tython. And how the Jedi have just rediscovered the original homeworld of the Jedi and all this kind of stuff. And the result of that is that on the timeline for the Old Republic on its website, they give different dates that we had never gotten before for things like the Force War. And because the assumption was this is a series that leads into the Force War, that the date that they gave on that website must have been the date for when Dawn of the Jedi started. And it turns out when you actually get the Dawn of the Jedi book... Uh, Dawn of the Jedi into the void, that goes out the window because the realization was that, wait a second, that date may work for when the flashbacks were taking place within Into the Void, but the dates they give, they have these new dates called Thoyor dates or Thoyor arrival dates. Uh, those don't make sense if you're using the date that we thought was the beginning of the story, which at the time was 25,793 years before the Battle of Yavin. And that sort of led to some questions. I went back and forth with Leland Chi asking about it, and he was able to confirm that, no, it's actually a decade later. And if you look on the Old Republic's website, it's that they say that the, the Force War ran for 10 years. So instead of being the date that the Force War began, according to the Old Republic website, it's actually that Dawn of the Jedi's beginning when they said the Force War ended. And then this storyline jumps a year after Prisoner of Boggan. So we've got all of Dawn of the Jedi in 25,783 BBY, and then now this jumps into the one that ends with two instead of three. But still, these issues didn't say it correctly originally. The first issues say the events in the story begin over 36,000 years before the events of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which is bogus um, by issue three. 
The events in this story begin over 25,000 years before the events of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which is true but still not specific. Uh, I had talked to Leland Chi about this and to Jan Dersima about this, and both of them said that they would try to talk to Dark Horse to get it fixed so the real date would show up because sites like Wikipedia, among others, were still giving the wrong dates for these stories because really the only place that it had been confirmed what the real dates were was just in those emails back and forth between me and Lee G, as far as I know, and that's not something that could be put out there as, see, this is an official statement, because it's just an email, and I'm not going to provide those emails to other websites as a way of basically saying, hey, see here, this is proof, because I think that would be disrespecting that line of communication. Let me get this straight. The, the Force War itself is, is 10 years, not one year? It was originally supposed to be 10 years. It said on the Old Republic's uh -huh. website that it was a decade-long conflict that ended a year before it actually ends here. Um, what they finally did, by the time we got to issue number four, they did fix it and put the correct date in there. So those of you who have been looking for what's the real date for Dawn of the Jedi stuff, if you look at the issue, uh, if you look at the inside of issue four or five, it gives the right date for this story, 25,782 years BBY, and since this story takes place a year after all the other Dawn of the Jedi stories, then we can easily date it back and get the correct date for those. It took a long time, a lot of frustration, and a lot of back and forth to try to get that clarified, but thankfully they finally did it. Um, so thank goodness for that. We finally have exact dates for this, um, and we can work on you know how everything else fits in with this. But that also means that any dates that we had back dealing with things like you know, in the wake of the Force War, uh, the Jedi head out into the broader galaxy and eventually become known as the Jedi Order. And the first Jedi learns about humility and, and morality from a Kamasi and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff that we were told happens after the Force War. We now at least can start to put into a context of a time. Um, but it does appear that the Old Republic's website was incorrect, which makes sense as something looking back thousands of years was incorrect in apparently assuming that the Force War was something that lasted 10 years. Instead, it apparently only lasts one in this case. Um, so what we get here with this story is a five-issue arc uh, written by John Ostrander, illustrated by Jan Dersima, that jumps one year after Prisoner of Bogan. Prisoner of Bogan had ended with the Rakatans knowing about Tython, and they're on their way to conquer it. We jump a year ahead, and the war's been going on pretty much straight for a year with Zesh and uh, Rajivari, who we know was a leader in this time thanks to the Old Republic uh, MMO, and uh, Dagon Lok, basically playing the role of leading the Jedi in this conflict, or the Jedi, however you want to pronounce it, in this conflict, and we finally see some things play out with character arcs that have been developing um, to finally lead us with what I think is somewhat of a satisfactory conclusion, still with some questions open, for this series. But I must say that this arc, it does tie up some character things um, when it comes to Zesh, you know, which side is he going to find himself on? What about Trill being there essentially as a spy as of the previous arc? Um, what is it the Rakatans really want on Tython? And sort of lets us know a little bit about the Thoyor, not really answering questions about it, but giving a new dimension to them. But this is not a character-centric story arc by any means. This is much more of a battle-action butt-kicking arc. You could almost think of the three different arcs of the Dawn of the Jedi comic series as the three acts of any Star Wars film. There's sort of an, a more action-based first part, then there's the second part that leads us to a dark ending where things are getting bad for our protagonists. And then the last act is very much the bombastic explosive conclusion that's more action than it is character development. There is character development, but I would say that this is something where you must have read the previous two arcs of Dawn of the Jedi, maybe even Into the Void, to really get the full breadth and scope and oomph of this story because... There's not a lot of time spent building up characters that you're assumed to already know from the previous arcs, but there is payoff for those characters here. Yeah, I mean, I, it was one of those ones where it, it had a feeling like Invincible, where there was just so much action, so many battles happening that it all kind of flew by. Uh, this is one that, that I almost feel like it's almost disserved in the aspect of they could have really fleshed this out a heck of a lot more and told one heck of a powerful story. That's not to say that it's not a good story. 
but I was left wanting more because I, I felt like it went by so fast. I mean, even five issues, it just flew right by. There was so much going on and how it dealt with that system and everything. I mean, you know, you get the sense that the Ricotta, as they're kind of coming in, that it was almost like the New Jedi Order happening all over again, where the Typhon system was the galaxy at large. You know, this is this is the galaxy now. And then all of a sudden in come these invaders through a vector point, which was Zesh's entryway and, and all this. And I, I mean, in that regard, you know, I, I really dug the premise of the story and stuff, but there were also sides of it that had me scratching my head constantly, you know, the, the terms of balance and, and, you know, what that means to them and, and how it seems like there's very little of them being concerned with falling to the light, <laughs> but throughout this arc, there's a lot of people falling to the dark and it does leave the story arc in a way where you could kind of see the Jedi evolving and being more dedicated to the light because of the events of this war and the ramifications therein after. Uh, there's one part where uh, uh, Dagon Locke's holocron is talking about destroying one of the most beautiful worlds in the whole uh, the whole system, a world very much like Ithor, where they didn't even allow people to kind of build on the planet. It was that serene. They had floating cities and stuff. But in order to try to win the war, they destroyed the planet. And was that worth it? Uh, you know, and then and then the fact that Tython itself, the way it reacted to the dark side and stuff like that, it's like you almost got the feeling that whatever happened in this force war, it 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 kicked the dark side into motion. I mean, there's a moment where they talk about balance tipping towards the darkness. So when you move forward after the comic, I could see how the Jedi would then focus so much on on staying to the light, you know, trying to bring that back. Because throughout this, that was the one premise that I felt like it was missing. It was like the most you ever got was was a few of the Jedi going, you know you must be back in balance. It was, it was more focusing on that balance, recognizing that, yeah, they were fighting in the dark side that, that they were requiring to channel the dark side for their dark sabers and stuff. And that balance, that philosophy that was going on in there, like I said, it happened so fast that I would have loved to have it fleshed out more. There there was like, there's another scene later where one of the characters goes, I know everything now. I know what the throw yours are. And I'm just like banging my head on the desk. Like, please give me something. Tell me, I want to know what you know. You know, yeah, there's that really cool side of, well, they kept it a mystery. And I get that. But there's a part of me, too, that was like, you know, this is your last hurrah here, Dark Horse. Like, fill in some answers here because you're probably never going to get another opportunity here. The mystery is going to be re-mysterious because they're going to possibly do a clean slate. I mean, I don't know when it comes to that regard. But the excitement that I have getting into the Force War and stuff, I it, it's only tainted in the aspect of it happens so Fast. There's so many things that I wish they would have told more. I mean, like by the time you go from issue one to two, you get the feeling like like days or weeks or maybe even months have passed between those two issues. And then it kind of builds up to that point where you're going like scene to scene to scene to scene. But you definitely get the, the idea that a lot of passage of time has, has jumped from one arc to the next as you're going through this era. Yeah, and I think that that part of this is intentional, part of the whole sense that it's very uh, fast-paced is intentional and part of it was unintentional. The intentional part was that whole jumping a year in. I think that's a very, it's an odd creative choice, but I think it's it works. They could have bogged down arc after arc after arc, arc after arc of this series with just the Force War. It would have become another uh, Republic comic series in the era of the Clone Wars type of thing where it was this ongoing conflict. Um, instead, they wind up jumping ahead and letting us see how bad it, in many cases, gets um, to see how the Force War ends. And if this really is a story about the origins of the Jedi, you don't necessarily need every single moment covered. You can do that type of jump just like they did in the first issue of Force Storm, where it jumps from time period to time period to time period to bring it up to that present day. I have to wonder if this type of time jumping thing would have become the norm if this series had continued, and maybe we would have gotten the next story set five years later, ten years later, a hundred years later, to see that carrying on of how the Jedi go from the Jedi, or however you're supposed to pronounce it, to being the Jedi Order. Um, in that sense, it also turns out to be somewhat fortuitous, because this is where basically everything ends. Uh, the Marvel buyout was announced at this point. Um, it was kind of a shock to all the members of the creative teams over at Dark Horse, and um, they even say, you know, at the, at the end, at the end of the issue, they sort of had this form letter that they use at the beginning of the letters page on the last issue of any of these comic series. And uh, in this case, they're talking about the end of Dawn of the Jedi and such. 
And it definitely seems like, and this is from also seeing some of Jan Dursima's comments and whatnot, like this was kind of a surprise that this was the end. And by jumping that year and showing us the end of the Force War, we don't wind up having the resolution of the Force War being the loose end. And we've been wanting to know what this was ever since the Force War was first mentioned in the New Essential Chronology. We wondered, what is this conflict? We finally have gotten a chance to see it. Um, it would have been nice for it to continue, and I think that's kind of what they were setting up. They were setting up, you know, more arcs to come in the future, maybe learning about the real mystery behind uh, the Thoyor, maybe learning about, you know, what's going to happen now, because as the story ends, you sort of see a fragmenting of the Jedi Order into two camps, um, not necessarily one based on evil and one based on good, so much as you've got essentially one that is more peaceful and one that is more sort of trying to act as a guardian of sorts, um, to protect the Tython system. And it just sort of has the sense that we were moving into a new era for Dawn of the Jedi, which would have sent the series off in an unusual different direction, kind of like Knights of the Old Republic once you get past um, uh, Vindication. you know. Um, but mm -hmm. as it stands, I think it works out well, and that time jump is the saving grace of this series. It saved it from being uh, the next, oh, what was it called? Uh, the next Invasion with a satisfactory conclusion that really didn't answer squat and wasn't satisfactory to anybody but those putting the brakes on the series. At least in this yeah. case, we really got an ending, a, a fast-paced ending that we certainly wanted more from at times because of how fast-paced it was, but certainly a strong ending. Yeah, I will take what we got here as a win. I mean, granted, there there were parts of me that really wanted more out of it. I would have loved to see this been stretched out to a 12-issue series. I think it could have been better served in that regard. But this is definitely a win uh, in my book. It, it did make me think of things, though, that I hadn't really thought about when it came to terms of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Uh, one with being is the Sith Dark Side Eyes. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, we see uh, Seknos, he ends up having the eyes at one point. But it, it made me kind of question if that was the introduction of Sith eyes. If When you start using the dark side, your eyes shift that way. I, I started to look at that like, you know, that might have been a mistake on Lucas's to do that. Because that kind of threw some things off for me in the overall saga as I was looking at. And another one, though, was uh, Force Illusion. There's a scene where Zesh kind of creeps up on Trill. And Trill turns around and says, Zesh, but really quiet, and then shoots the Force Illusion. He uh, he grabs it, but he's talking about the fact, he goes, you know, you have no f connection to the Force, and yet, how did you see, what did you see when you fired? Which made me stop and think, I'm like, ooh, so does that mean that, that in theory here, that non-Force users shouldn't be able to see Force ghosts? Which, which then made me stop and think about, you know, Return of the Jedi. Then Leia should have been able to see Anakin and Yoda and Ben Kenobi then in that regard, which also made me think of, of uh, Prithi in the new ongoing ex, uh, Star Wars series where she had heard Ben's voice. And I was just like, whoa, that's like another piece of that little puzzle there. But I, I liked how they, they did a couple little things like that. They'll do a, a couple little things where like, you know, Red Squad or Come With Me and, and you know, Red Lead, Gold Lead, things like that where I kind of was like, okay, really, would they would they be having those colors back then? You know, things like that where I was stopping it and scratching my head. But again, getting back to the fact that the, the, the Force Sabers were a dark side creation and that was how they got that technology and, and how you said it, they divided into two camps. I love everything that it does in that regard and they tell you just enough to kind of you know, give you information to kind of help you speculate and ponder on as to what could have happened after that. You know, I mean, they could have, they could have left a lot more up in mystery and I, I'm very thankful that they didn't as well. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentient of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, and this may wind up being a multi-episode review of this because there is quite a bit to it. Um, we start with what is sort of this story's version of an opening crawl. It's actually Dagan Look having a, a log during the course of the war, and not really a holocron, just a log that talks about what's going on. And this was quite a shock uh, to a lot of readers, especially since if you check out um, the initial page, uh, the, the opening page of the first issue, uh, it still uses those wrong dates, so we didn't realize a year had passed until we see it on the first page. Um, we start with the, uh, the credits page 
kind of version of a crawl, which uh, sets up all this very well. So the Tython system has been plunged into war. With the arrival of the armies of the Rakatan Infinite Empire, it is up to the Jedi to defend the remaining free worlds of the system. Now that tells us already that some time has passed because the invasion hadn't even happened at the end of Prisoner of, of Bogan. We got the ships on their way to Tython, but that was it. Uh, the Jedi armies are led by Dagon Luke and the offworlder known as Zesh, who were both exiles on the Dark Moon Bogan. When the two escaped custody, it was discovered that Luke's mad visions of the system under siege were about to come true, and that Zesh's mastery of the Rakatan technology for creating Force Sabers might be the Jedi's only hope against the Infinite Empire. But can even the Jedi stand against the Rakatan shock troops known as Flesh Raiders? That's a big issue there. It says mutated versions of the Rakata themselves bred only for battle. This was one of those crucial links. There are Flesh Raiders in the Old Republic video game. The MMO. And there was this question of how did they get there? Why are they such a big deal for the people of Tython to fight against then when we don't see any mention of them in the previous stories for Dawn of the Jedi? This introduces them, gives them an origin story that they are essentially mutated lower caste um, Rakatans used as foot soldiers, and there are many of them left on Tython once the Force War itself is over. Dagan Locke then introduces it with what is really sort of our opening here, saying... It has been a year since the Rakatan Infinite Empire first attacked the Tython system. Zesh, once a force hound and slave to the Rakata, says that his former masters are also called the Builders by many in the galaxy. We have known nothing but destruction. That Builders thing is back to the KOTOR video game nickname. They savaged the outpost at Fury's Gate, then took the giants, Obri and Maur, and their moons, before we blunted their attack on Tython itself. They fell back to Skagora, making their base there. So Tython has already been attacked... But the Rakatans were pushed away from it. Now they are based on Skagora, another of these planets that we've seen within Dawn of the Jedi. On every world this enemy has attacked, they have enslaved the population and left ruin. Finally, the Jedi saw the wisdom of creating Force Sabers, the weapons of the Rakatan Force Hounds. Zesh taught them how to make use of those weapons, blades of light channeled by the dark side of the Force. And at long last, the Jedi admitted the truth of my vision and begged me to lead them. Somehow I doubt it was really begging. I descended from Bogan. That's one of those themes we're going to see here is Dagon Luke's um, uh, arrogance, his pride throughout the story. Well, and they even but, mentioned his redemption, which is kind of funny because he wasn't redeemed. It was just that they admitted their own error. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, it says, Rajivari, who of course we know briefly from this series, but we know must have been a major figure in this, especially uh, the first instances of light versus dark and such. We know he's going to be one to promote the dark side later, um, thanks to backstory we get of him in one of the earliest quests on Tython in the Old Republic MMO, Rajivari heads the combined forces of the Settled Worlds and the Jedi, but I lead the Jedi, supposedly. Uh, then there are the Seers, Jedi who perceive the Force in dreams and visions, sharing their images and impressions for us to interpret in order to divine where the enemy will strike next. Tasha Rio will be one of these figures after she played a more active role in the fighting in previous arcs. See, and that was where I got confused on this page because it's her that's in this cover, but mm -hmm. it's it's Dagon talking. It would have been nice if they'd have had from the log of Jedi Master General Dagon Locke at the start, not at the end, because I was like, who, who's talking? Who is? What's going mm -hmm. on? I was so kind of confused at first. Yeah, that, that is true. It's, it's definitely set up in such a way that it doesn't make it clear until you get to the end of that first page. It says, The Force is with them as it is with me. I listen closely to them as the Jedi should have listened to me long ago. The Force is with us. We are aware. And with that, we are thrown immediately into the conflict of the Force War. There is no other uh, prelude to this. It's the in-media resting. It's like Star Wars um, on film. Usually it's straight into the action. Um, and we start with Zesh fighting against the Flesh Raiders. Um, these and mutated early Rakatans. It reminds me of the Phantom Menace. So you know how when they did that that teaser trailer where you saw the Gungans coming out of the mist? You know, that first panel's like that. You know, you watch the Flesh Raiders coming and then they're walking through the mud and stuff. And then you see Zesh's kind of like lift up out of the water and the water's flowing off of him and then the attack. Like, yeah, you're right. It does have that feel of a movie in that regard. Very much so. Uh, but what we get a lot of times is a lot of an issue sucked up by the action sequences here. So we've got Zesh fighting the Flesh Raiders, and above him is Shay Coda, who I guess if, if Zesh is supposed to be named by the symbol on his face, does that mean Shay Coda's name should be Triangle? I'm just thinking. Yeah, maybe T -square. Or Delta. Um, so 
She's flying Butch, that winged Rancor that we met in an earlier arc. Uh, and there's a bunch, there will be times in here where we see other Force Hounds, but they generally don't get named. So she's fighting in the air uh, alongside, we'll find later, Quan Jang, fighting against this other Force Hound up in the air that's flying this mutated winged creature of his own, while Zesh is fighting below. Uh, and when the Force Hound's winged mount gets killed, it drops down, that is the... the uh, the Force Hound drops down to fight against Zesh. And so we've got this sense that they are fighting together again, something we are going to see more. And they really build this up within the narration. One of the biggest character things we get in this arc that isn't skimped upon because of how much action there is, is the whole thing with Shea Coda and Zesh, right? Shea Coda felt a connection with Zesh before his master's ship crash landed on Tython. Even now, within the smoke and carnage of battle, she can feel the spark that is him below, a dark brilliance in the Force, and so on, and so on. Um, every issue tends to hammer home the connection between those two because it will play such a big role later. And part of me wants to say that that works because it brings that to the forefront when so much else is getting lost in the action, but I gotta say it feels kind of heavy-handed, too. That they really do harp on this whole Shea Coda Zesh thing. And I gotta be honest with you, so much of that has been handled through the narration of they feel this mysterious connection and such that they've never really been a believable couple to me. I mean, I believe that that's the purpose of where the story is going, and I get that that's what's happening, but they've never really felt like they had the kind of connection that, say, Leia and Han did. Um, or the way that uh, Cade and Deliah Blue do... Uh, in legacy it feels like in a lot of ways it's a forced pairing i think you're right because the the way that they talk about it there's a panel where she says in love with you and to me that that jumped right out at me i mean you know when i was a teenager i was in love with my first girlfriend but i love my wife there's a different love there you know because when you're in love with someone and it's somebody that you you know you've never really experienced love before any of these kind of things it's it's new to you you're not exactly sure what love is yet but once you do know what love is, you don't say I'm in love anymore. You just flat out, I love you. You know, I mean, and I think that's the difference here. Han and Leia, they they weren't just in love. They loved each other. You know, with these two, it's more she doesn't know what it is. There's something there, but it's it's something that she's hoping will become love. And therefore, she's convinced herself she's in love with Zesh. Zesh wants to know what love is. No, nothing like that. Um, all right. So. Yeah, it's people who like 80s music are like, yeah, right on. And everybody else is like, what in the crap is he talking about? <laughs> um, they are not the only ones fighting, though. Um, we find that they're in the midst of a larger battle here uh, that is going on. They are on Chicaqua, which we know as the place that uh, Volnos Rio has his base. We've met him uh, and more of the Rio family, like Hawk, before. Um, it looks like you've got these giant ships that are very much like uh, they're called annihilators, but they're very much like the shape of a Rakatan vessel, except instead of having the arms, it's like a ball with the two arms, almost like an H, except the crossbar has a ball attached to it. Um, instead of them being horizontal for ships, they're pointing vertically, so they wind up being basically like legs like for these the ships. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's this whole idea of sort of a, all their technology looks very similar. Even their bases look a lot like this type of technology. Have you ever seen the Rakatan vessels in, uh, or like the Star Forge and such in Knights of the Old Republic? It'll look very much kind of right at home here. Um, but they're yeah. in the midst of a bigger battle. Dagon Lot comes running out, basically saying, look, you know, we've discovered their position, but their position is our position, and Zesh convinces him that, look, you know, we're either going to be enslaved or eaten if they wind up capturing us. So they have to basically order uh, that Hawk, Rio, and the others, who at this point are up in the Starfighters, start bombarding their own position. Uh, See, and I like that because it wasn't really that, that Zesh said enslaved or eating. See, Zesh starts painting the picture of how evil the Rakata really are. And, and this panel that you just mentioned is, is a perfect one. You know, he goes, he goes, no, they won't. But without it, we stand no chance. Do you know what Rakata do to enemy captives? Enslave, Dagan says. Wrong. They eat you. Oh, They'll cook you alive first. I mean, and, and that's just the thing. It's like he keeps going back to that. Like, you know, they'll eat you or or we'll end up on the master's dinner plate. And and there's 
I don't know. It's something about that just struck me as as there was a, a primal fear with Zesh of that. Like they must have scared the heck out of him at a young age, watching him just them devour people and stuff. Like he'll mention later on that part of the tattoos is so they can retrieve their force hounds if they've fallen in battle, so they can feast on their bodies. It's like, oh man, these guys are not only will they mutate their own people, but they're willing to eat anybody that they take out. See, and I'll buy that. And I buy it when it comes to the non-Force users later, and they make this distinction later of non-Force users being eaten, because if that's what they're afraid of, that's not what the Rakatans do in this story to the captives. When they capture Jedi, they put them in those capsule things that look like stasis chambers and suck the Force from them as a way of powering their vehicles. So if now, is that, saying, the same, is that the same way as the Star Forge, or is that an alternate technology? I'm assuming it's kind of the same thing, because the Star Forge was Rakatan technology. That's, okay, uh, it's that's one what of I was three. getting the same feeling, too. It, it had that same ex- vibe, anyway. Right, it's one of three different Starforge-style vessels that create different things, apparently, within the continuity. But it's, yeah, for whatever reason, his fear of the whole, we're going to get eaten if we're caught, doesn't ring true to me throughout this story. Because when they're actually caught, that's not even remotely what happens to them. Um, that, that struck me as kind of a weird discordant note within this story. Um, within the same battle, we have Trill. Turns out Trill is still there. She is still fighting alongside the Jedi, even though she's a force hound of Skalnas. Um, she is still pretending to be a native of the Tython system and pretending she has no connection to the force. Nobody has sussed out at this point that she's a force user after a year. Again, another yeah. of these things that kind of has me scratching my head a little bit, but she's fighting alongside uh, Seknos Wrath, not to be confused with Skalnas. I always get those names confused and have to go back and reread to figure out which character they were talking about because the names are so close together. Um, they're fighting in the same place, and he seems to have an attachment to her because he's saving her uh, from the bombardment. Um, it's this uh, kind of this this chaos and fog of war type thing. We have all these individual conflicts going on within the broader span of this one battle, which is in the broader span of the war, which is very much what Star Wars does well. You know, whether we're talking about the Battle of Geonosis and we focus in on what's happening, you know, with Anakin and Obi-Wan and Dooku and Yoda and such, even though there's a broader battle going on around it. Star Wars is usually really good at taking this idea of a big war and instead of getting lost in the confusion of the big conflict and all the CGI and special effects and such, to be able to narrow it down to a small handful of characters who we care about as our way of understanding the war. I think that works with very much a band of brothers type of effect to it. Uh, And they're doing it well here despite how freaking many characters they have to keep track of. There's a lot. One thing, though, about Trill that struck me is she's got a very Arcanian look to her, but she actually looks more like Jarrell. Uh, you know, and there was a comment in the KOTOR books about how she was like getting back to something that they had once lost. I mean, because Trill, she's got five fingers like a regular human, and she's got the elf tipped ears and the white eyes. And the re- I mean, the rest of her looks Arcanian. And I was just like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I. Which left me again wondering, you know, did they have plans for more? Are they going to tie in more later? Was that originally their goal here? And then, you know, a lot of this story got just chopped and they had to just condense it down to its basest, you know, completion to get it done and completed and to end this era in their own terms, even though they had more things planned. Because it definitely, when I was looking at her character, I was just like, man, there's, I wonder if there's a purposeful connection there. She is the Aryan amongst them, or at least the, uh, the albino amongst them. Uh, we shift, and the, and the battle, I mean, again, I don't think we need to necessarily get into every aspect of each part of the battle, because that's kind, that's not part of the broader story. It's Again, it's a lot of pages taken up by um, battle sequences that wind up playing into the broader plot. But we get a chance to glimpse uh, Master K2 and uh, Volnos Rio talking about the situation on Shikakwa, basically running things from a base there where they're coordinating also with the Jedi back on Tython, I like the fact that we do get to see that it's not just battles on the battlefield. There is a command center here, essentially, a base of operations from which they are coordinating things. We see more battle uh, with Maedong and Quan Jang and such fighting against them. And what interests me about the way that the fight goes, and yeah, it gets to that whole, you know, no mercy, no exceptions. We must kill the Flesh Raiders because they simply won't stop, even if their masters are retreating kind of stuff, that leads us to a very violent end that gives us a Jedi victory on Chikakwa, but amidst this, uh, we get to see the command structure at least briefly within the Rakatans, because there is a sub-Praetor named Selet. I guess I'm supposed to say it, C-E-H apostrophe L-E-T. All these different Rakatans are some little syllable, and then a apostrophe, and then another syllable behind it. A Skalnash, 
a toll car and now sell it. And this idea essentially that he won't, ex that is Skalnas, the, the Praetor, he won't accept the idea of defeat. And yet she says, sell it, that is a, a female Rakatan, um, basically saying, you know, look, you know, why don't you try to win a victory with this? You know, it seems as though the Jedi know where we're going to show up. It seems as though they're able to predict things, you know, because of their seers and whatnot. Um, there's no way this is going to actually wind up working, so we're getting the heck out of there. And she pulls back, and it sets up a scene that we can get later in the issue in which uh, we have this, essentially, this defeated general from the battlefield who is questioning the authority of those who understand the bigger picture of the war um, and a confrontation between those two. Very much sort of like if you've got a general um, in the armed forces questioning the broader strategy of the Joint Chiefs or of the president in a conflict. And sort of this thing that you know, we see in a lot of movies that's kind of familiar to American audiences of, well, where is you know the greater good lying for one side of the battle? Is it with the battlefield commanders who see what's going on to their troops? Or is it more of a big picture sort of thing, much more detached and about a bigger goal? Um, so the latter third of the issue winds up being something I thought was, was a welcome change of pace within the issue, that yeah. the battle ends, and it's not just the battle itself sucking up the issue. We have a chance to see what the Jedi are doing once the battle is over, and a brief time to see what the Rakatans are doing after this particular battle on Chikakwa is over. That was a nice twist uh, for me to get that downtime at the end. I like how at the end of that, you know, the downtime part, Seknos gets all angry and stuff, and, and Shay Koda, she starts to yell at him. You know, he's like, this war is nothing like the wars our ancestors fought. I'm tired. I stink of flesh raider guts. Using this force saber makes it impossible to stay in balance. This war is darkness. I hate this. And she goes, you wanted this. and you know, the, the back and forth there, again, getting back to that aspect of, you know, they're out of balance. They're tipping towards darkness. The sabers themselves kind of force them to do it. Killing forces them more into the darkness. And then, and then there's that moment where Zesh sees Trill and he's like, I know her, but I can't remember from where. And then, you know, in Coda, she's trying to like pawn, pawn it off. She reminds you of someone from home. No, it's her. When I see her, I feel close to her as though I owe her my life. And she's like, oh. And then they kind of go off and have a moment, you know, and they, they get really close, almost close to kissing. And Coda, like, I, I don't know, I, I like this. It felt like a very girl kind of thing to me. Like, you know, she's very dirty. She likes this guy. And she's like, well, yeah, I think I'm going to go scrape the swamp off me, grab some chow, get some sleep, maybe in that order. Don't feel much like celebrating. And she needs to go off. See ya. And I don't know, to me, that, again, gets back to that whole, you know, high school kind of romance kind of thing. You know, she likes him. She's not at her best. And she's like, I don't want him to see me at my worst. I'm going to go take off because they were just watching Trill and, and Seknos kind of all but hook up. I mean, they're practically hugging and kissing on each other. And, and then they went off and almost had the same thing. That whole, you know, the, the stresses of war brings people closer kind of thing. But yet she's got the the clairvoyance of mine to know that she's nasty right now and probably isn't the best time to get kissy with him and takes off and leaves him there. And I just, I don't know to me that that felt very high school relationship. Very much so. And it, and it also kind of, it's another of these things that kind of feels awkward given the time jump. It's kind of like they're wanting to continue the character development from where we saw them last. And yet a year has passed in terms of the conflict. And you can make the argument that conflict slowed down what was happening. I mean, even in terms of conflict slowing down other conflicts, I'm reminded of, of the Chinese Civil War, Chiang Kai-shek versus Mao Zedong. They're fighting for control. Is it going to be democracy from the nationalists or is it going to wind up being essentially um, communism uh, from Mao's side in China? And yet everything gets slowed down because of the war against Japan during World War II. You know, it takes waiting for World War II to end before things kind of get back on track with that civil war, so to speak. And here it's kind of like, well, maybe the relationships are kind of off track because of the war. Because you would figure that by now, after a year has passed, A, that Shay and Zesh, if they were going to hook up, would have hooked up because they were already kind of in that position in the previous arcs. Um, it seems odd and awkward that she would not quite know what, what to do in this situation. That it feels so high schoolish in terms of the relationship. Unless, what makes this an awkward situation is that Zesh, even after a year, still hasn't come to grips with the idea of love and the light side and such, and it's leaving them stuck in this position. But it doesn't seem like there's really any explanation as to why it is that after a year, they're still in this spot in the relationship. Um, on top yeah. of that, you have the whole thing with Trill. You know, 
I see her. I know her, but I can't remember from where. Have you been pondering this every time you've seen Trill in the last year? And you still haven't managed to figure it out or suss it out or investigate it? And is this the first time you're saying this to Shay so she can have this reaction? Or is this like the 20th time you said this to Shay and she's still having the same reaction because she doesn't know how to deal with it in that high schoolish sort of way? Um, well, this I could guess- also be the first time that all the Jedi get together, you know, from being out in their different groups. I mean, maybe Seknos hadn't been fighting around them at all and he'd only been fighting with Trill. And that could even explain why Coda and Zesh aren't so close. I mean, she's been up in the air. He's been on the ground fighting. And while they're, you know, fighting as a unit and stuff, and, and while she's obviously had a crush on him since the moment she first met him, you know, maybe she was feeling something unifying force, knew that there was going to be a connection there later, and that's what's drawing her. But I feel like she's the one that's slowly being drawn in, and this is where we're finally seeing her decide, you know, I'm going to do something about it. Yeah, it just, it just makes me wonder if, a year was the right amount of time to jump. I still like the fact that they did the time jump. I think that made it made it something that could finally wrap up the Force Wars, and it gives us a lot more uh, action-packed stuff here if this really is going to be like the third act of a film in a lot of ways. But it's almost like they're trying to have it both ways. You know, so much time has passed. Look how bad the war has gotten. And yet, so little development has happened in the span of an entire year when it comes to the whole issue of Shay and Zesh and Trill and Zesh. Uh, it feels as though that's a little bit awkward in the way that it plays out. I'm glad they were able to deal with them because otherwise this series would have felt very much incomplete. But yeah, I mean, maybe six months would have made more sense. Maybe eight months, uh, a year. feels like a long time for those issues not to have been something that have sort of sussed themselves out already at this point. Um, in any event, we end the issue with a scene between Selet and Skalnas in the base on Skagora, which is basically, again, kind of looks like the top half of a Star Forge, or basically like they took one of the Rakatan ships and just buried it in the swamps and such. Um, and he reveals, in what seems as though it's supposed to be the female commander arguing with her superior who happens to be male, and he reveals his grand plan to her, and they're going to hook up together and lead together into this glorious future with her as his queen. We get a nice twist on that where he basically reveals um, that on Tython, there is an infinity gate, right? Exactly like what we had our characters going after in Into the Void. And not only is this an infinity gate, we will find later it is a prime gate. So it's not just an infinity gate that kind of works like a stargate, where you got to go from one infinity gate to come out another infinity gate on the other side. But then instead, it's almost like going to hyperspace in that you go into the infinity gate and you can show up anywhere else within the galaxy. Um, that it's like the ultimate transportation device. You don't need one on the other side. It'll just send you wherever you want to go. Though, as we get to that later on, there, there's some logical things that, that start to fall apart when you think about a technology like that. Um, and does this but, have anything to do with the gate that Quinlan Voss found in the Republic series? Yes, those were the Infinity Gates. So that was. Uh, but didn't yeah. they have different species that supposedly created those? Or was the it always the Qua? It was okay. Okay, it was the Qua. Okay, yeah, so it's introduced there. It shows up again. I believe it was in uh, the Clone Wars Secret Mission series and winds up showing up here within this series. So it's this, this well-known ancient technology and the Qua being a group that actually interacted with the Rakatans and then at one point kind of basically screwed them over and said, no, you're bloodthirsty and crazy. We're not going to let you use the Infinity Gates anymore, which was touched on um, with the, uh, Anang's holocron back in an earlier arc here. But he reveals much of this plot, albeit without the prime aspect to the Infinity Gate, um, and she's like, you know, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna rule together side by side, aren't we? Uh, no, I just wanted you to know what you're losing because, uh, screw you, you're dead. And he force lightning Celette and kills her, um, which of course leads to him having that, his own James Bond moment of talking to the dead body so that we get some exposition of how, you know, I will ravage Tython until she submits and yields up the infinity gate. I will have Tython and she will renew my power and then I will take whatever I desire. Um. You know, he's talking to a dead body so that we can hear those thoughts of his. But he's revealing the Infinity Gate as the target and revealing the idea that the Rakatans are slowly losing their affinity for the Force, which is something that was first mentioned back as part of the waning days of the Rakatan Infinite Empire back as early as the KOTOR video game. So it's nice to see that it's not just we're going to capture this Force-rich world. There is a broader goal 
in mind here on behalf of him, which also manages to tie into Into the Void, which I thought was a nice touch. I wonder how much of that was planned to tie it into Into the Void with the Infinity Gate thing, or if this was just a, you know, it's something that they said was rumored to be on Tython, and both storylines happen to pick up on the same thing. Either way, it's a an interesting way to end it and raise the stakes for the first issue. Well, the other side, too, is like, you know, if the Infinity Gate was destroyed, would the Rakanans still have came and still wiped out everything just to get out of that to prove that it wasn't there? I mean, I was immediately thinking of that, too. Like, you know, what if in the other book they'd actually found it and destroyed it? Then they'd still be hosed because they would still want to check for themselves. Yeah, sort of this, you know, does it matter? And, and where is it? Because, you know, remember the character back, uh, the brother back in Into the Void believed that it was in the old city. And he was going to the old city to find it. And maybe there was an Infinity Gate there, but this prime one we're going to find is not in the place that he was searching back in Into the Void. It's in a completely different place um, in this story, at least as far and as that Infinity Gate goes. I like the location of where they put it. I thought mm-hmm. it made sense, and it added, it answered one of the mysteries that I've been scratching my head about since the moment we got issue zero. That's true. That is true. Um, so we pick up with issue number two, and Zesh is having a nightmare about the Rakatans being a slave of the Infinite Empire, Empire and such. Uh, and he's actually thinking that this may be like a foretelling that he's going to wind up being drawn back to the Rakatans, which is going to be the case as the series goes along. Um, it's interesting that as he's waking from this nightmare, Shay is running from her tent to his. Um, he's there without his shirt, and she's there in sort of like a... I don't even know what you'd call it. It's like it's a midriff-bearing shirt kind of thing like she'd be sleeping in. And you get this sense that the two of them – you could look at those sequences, look at the panels and think that the two of them were together sleeping together when he wakes up from his nightmare. But the very first panel, you see it only in shadow. She's running yeah. from her tent to his. Um, but this is the scene you mentioned where she does explain finally you know, that she is in love with him. And his response is kind of typical Zesh. Which is, you know, I'm not sure what love is, you know, or how I should respond. And it's kind of like a, you know, I'm not saying I don't love you or that I don't want to be with you or anything like that. It's not that. It's more just like, I don't know how to express what I'm feeling. So let me just kind of tell you what I'm feeling. And hopefully you'll see enough caring in that, that you'll sense that I'm kind of on the same page with you, lady. I just don't know how to express it. I'm a dude who just can't express my feelings kind of stuff except in this case at least he actually has a legitimate reason why and his way of expressing his love is to tell her the one true name that he is known by or he would have been known by in his homeworld the fact that Zesh is not his true name it's just a symbol it's just a way of being marked by the Rakatans that his real name is and I still don't know if I like this real name for the character but it's very simple very straightforward it's Tau T-A-U Tau and apparently they spend the rest of that night, um, you can either call it making love, or since he doesn't know what love is, uh, knocking boots uh, before the this next This doesn't level. know what love is. Exactly, as I said. Uh, Toda's gonna show him. Something <laughs> you know, like though, that. When she, when she says, I'm in love with you, though, that panel, is it just me or does she have a very striking Scarlett Johansson-like likeness there? Uh, I don't know, but then again, she doesn't have much of an expression, so she might be Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> uh, this whole panel, the two pages and stuff, I don't know. This, this to me is, for all you fangirls out there, here's your eye candy. I mean, it's all Zesh, half-naked, all these poses, but he's like, oh, look at me. He's like, I mean, and then you got the aspect of how he's all just scarred up and stuff, too. So you can tell he's had a hard life and all that. But there's one of the really interesting little things, was you mentioned the light in that one panel. She comes in, she's got the light in her hand, and then after that, it's floating around. It kind of reminds me of the uh, the glow ball that uh, Eyes Walls or whatever his name was uh, in the... Uh, oh, was he an Arcanian? Or no, an Arcodian uh, in the New Jedi Order, Recovery. He had created them. But it had that definite, that feel of it was like something she had created and then it's hovering there around her the whole time and them around. It's like it never disappeared. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I was stopped and I was thinking about that. I'm like, I, I don't know. They don't even have to mention these things, but I'm like, ooh, cool new force power. Yeah, I wonder if anyone else has used that before. <laughs> so we move into the next step of the war. And uh, Tasha Rio and the other seers are basically seeing a, a Rakatan fortress. And Zesh comes up with the idea that basically... Yes, they may easily be overrun. Um, If they don't keep the settled worlds on their side, they're in deep, deep trouble. And there's this sense that uh, Volnos Rio is 
trying to basically create a separate piece with the Rakatans where uh, as long as they give up Tython and give up the Jedi, everybody else who's not Force-sensitive be left alone, even though they know that that's basically a crock. And yeah. Zesh comes up with this idea of, well, you don't really need to worry about wiping out all the Rakatans. All you really need to do is find a way to get to, to Seknos. Or not Seknos, see, I did it again, to Skullnas, the other hyphenated guy out there. All you need to do is get to Skullnas, the Praetor, because if you can get to him and kill him, it's very much going to be like what, in a lot of ways, they did with Legacy and the Sith, the one Sith. This idea that you take out the head, and the next level down, these sub-Praetors will wind up fighting each other as a means of next ones being in charge. It's sort of this, there's always this competition that is fermented within that society, and they can use it against it. And if nothing else, if they can't cause the enemy to kill each other, at least they can sow enough chaos to allow them to win the Force War. And I, I find it interesting that while this makes perfect sense and allows the story to be narrowed down into one main mission, kind of like the mission in Legacy to kill Darth Krayt, that Dagon Locke shows his true colors here. And he'll keep doing this, which is to always try to claim credit for everything. I mean, Zesh lays out this plan that is his idea based on his knowledge of the Rakatans. And what's Dagon Locke say? Excellent little brother. He calls him little brother. It's something that seems to have been picked up because of their adventures together back in Prisoner of Bogan. Um, excellent little brother. You must have studied the plan I used to defeat Queen Hadea back in the Despot War. Um, he's always trying to claim uh, credit for all of this. Uh, but it allows Zesh to use the power that we saw, the Force Shadow thing, back in the first issue of Force Storm to basically send a, he sort of goes into the Force, delving into the dark side, and mm -hmm. kind of an astral plane kind of thing, and manages to, to seek out the presence, kind of like what a Force Hound is supposed to do, seek out the presence of, in this case, a Skalnas, as opposed to the presence of Tython, like he did to find the planet, and is able to locate where on Skagora the Rakatan home base is. And I found that kind of an interesting way to jump ahead, but again, it's another of these, you guys didn't think about doing that within the last year to try to find their base on Skagora? I mean, granted, they may not have attacked Tython and fallen back to Skagora a year ago. That may have just been within, within the last few weeks or the last few months, but at no point did Zesh ever say, you know, I could just, you know, kind of flow walk sort of into the force and I can tell you guys where the base is so we can attack it. Uh, Again, it's another of these uh, where the time compression makes some bits of it feel kind of awkward. Mm -hmm. Well, I do like the way that that it's described. You know, you, you had uh, Rajan or whatever his name was go, "I wish, I wish it, but how will you accomplish this?" And then Zest is like, "I will allow myself to fall into the darkness and send myself outward." And the way it's described it reminded me of a kind of like you know, like when you get a side shot of the ocean, you know, and everything up above the water is the light side and the ocean and the water down below is the dark side. It's kind of like, you know, he's sitting on the boat and projects an image of himself underneath the water. And then once he's underneath the water, then he moves around and, you know, looking at it like that from the force, I thought that was a real slick way to get around and move around. You know, I mean, other times it's, you know, you'll see people where, you know, they're drawing on their memories, kind of like, uh, uh, the teleporting movie Jumper, uh, where you know where they knew the location and they see it in their mind's eye and then boom, they're there kind of thing. I like the way that this one it was kind of like you know he kind of sought himself, he centered himself into the darkness and then moved forward. I, I don't know, it was a different technique and I like that. This is where the actual conflict really gets going because Trill, of course, is a spy, and she contacts Skalnas and basically says, uh, "Hey, uh, by the way, they have found where the base is." You know, do you want me to sabotage their mission? And he basically turns it into a trap. He pulls an Emperor Palpatine. You know, they know where it is. Now, granted, this time he didn't let them know where it was, like Palpatine let them know about the Death Star too. but it's still this, we present a target that they can't avoid attacking, so let's use it as a trap. And we get this great kind of quick moment, another of these times where with all the bombastic action that's going on, we have a very quick, mostly quiet moment, barring a lot of the, the heavy-handed dial or narration to remind us, you know, don't forget, Shay and, and uh, Zesh have a bond. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Well, and that bond, too, it's like, it's like before, like you were saying, you know, it's like they've had this year and a half to really establish the bond, but it's not until they had the, bow, 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 oh, now that bond is strong. Like, 
Oh, all you need is just two force users. Go in there, kids. Go create a nice force using bond here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just that to me was kind of a little disturbing. It was like, well, they didn't really focus so much on how strong their bond was before. I mean, they talked about it a little they bit did. and how they they felt each other, but now it's a strong bond. Like it's been sealed. They sealed the deal. I don't well, know. It, yeah, it's supposed to be sealed by the the connection of the you know the love for each other as opposed to the making love with each other thing. Um, but that, yeah, it's the narration that throws me off. The pictures, I get that Anakin and Padme from the Clone Wars Gendy series kind mm-hmm. of feel. You know, that that I get. But it's the narration that makes me, like, take a second to kind of have a little sophomoric fun at it. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, which is what he's referring to, that that last bit of, I guess, the first chapter of the Clone Wars micro-series by Tartakovsky, where Anakin's taking off in the Azure Angel, and as he's lifting up, um, he's basically right outside Padme's apartment, and there's the whole looking at each other kind of thing, and a hand on the window thing. Because we get that here as Shay is on uh, one Jedi battleship, and uh, Zesh is in one of the starfighters that's that's flying by. Um, so they wind up attacking Skagora, and again, they don't spend a lot of time in this case on every aspect of the battle. They show us what we need to see. The Jedi get there, and they attack, and it turns out that it's a trap, something that is realized both by Dagon Luck on the battlefield and by Tasha Rio um, as a seer at about the same time. Now, I have a question for you about her vision. Mm-hmm. In that panel, everything's kind of red. What in the heck's going on with the snake and the dude with the crown? Oh, I have no idea. I, have I mean, no is that, idea. that that to me, when I saw that, I'm like, is this like part of the story that they just had to scrap because they found out that Marvel got the licensing back? Because, I mean, it definitely had this feeling like most of the characters in the background and stuff, like none of them are characters that you've seen before. And then that guy is like, got this all brooding, knowing, and the snake's about to strike. And I'm just like, what does this have to do with it? Like it threw me so off. I started scratching my head, and I started. I, I mean, I stopped. And I started thinking about other things that had nothing to do with the story, but more of the publishing side of things. Yeah, it was funny because I saw that 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 image. Uh, it's the second time I'd gone through and read this issue, or second or third was last night, as we were getting ready to record for everything. And I got to that panel, and you know what popped in my head? Another musical interlude, if you will, popped into my head, which was the He Man. <laughs> kind of stuff like it, it looks like the it's it's like the foreground is star wars but the background is it's tila or the sorceress and look this is the man who uh, was a keldor who became skeletor or maybe he's supposed to be one of hordak's minions the snake men yeah the the images that appear it, it the image makes perfect sense until you get to the top right hand quarter where you've got some individual with like a crown on who looks like he should be out of He-Man with a snake like back over his shoulder that looks like basically a snake and the face of what I think is supposed to be one of the uh, Nikto Jedi yeah. uh, right next to him. But the, the Nikto Jedi, it's like the back of his head seems like it's meant to blend into the back of the snake or something. Yeah, that her vision... At that moment, I mean, unless this is meant to be sort of symbolism to show her it's a trap as opposed to being an actual, you know, direct visage, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of the way that that background is drawn, no. Um, but basically, but it's... The way it sprung worked, because you got the mm-hmm. vision first, you didn't even realize... I mean, I didn't realize until I turned the page that Locke actually attacking was him attacking. I thought that was part of the vision at first. And then after she says it's a trap, you turn, and then... You know, they come through the the caves and then he says it's a trap. And I, I like that because, you know, now you're like, oh, oh this is really happening right there. And it's kind of like, oh, man, you 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 see her is kind of slacking here. I mean, we need more than real time. We need some advance notice here, you know. But when when uh, Dagon falls down, he's like, Seknos, take command. I, I found that was probably even though there's not much action there, I found that that the fact that he was willing to give away command, because like you said, he's always so quick to claim everything as his own. Mm-hmm. That gave an idea of how desperate the moment was. Right. And this is where we sort of push ourselves towards the last three issues, because the last three issues are going to do that thing where here's this broader conflict. Let's focus in again. And I think this works very well. Focus in again on these small groups of characters and what they're doing amidst the bigger conflict. And every once in a while we can cut back to the bigger conflict and remind everybody what's going on. But let's focus on these groups. But to do that, you've got to get the groups where they need to be. And this battle is basically what does it. You've got Dagon, who winds up being separated out from the rest of the group. Seknos with the main group. And then we see Zesh going and basically going directly into the dark and just frying the living crap out of a bunch of flesh raiders 
with Shay flying above, again, still on Butch, who's going to play a role later in the story. You need Butch the Flying Rancor to make this story work. Um, and she's battling and is being reminded by Quan Jang, who had been someone who trained her, as we saw back in previous arcs, um, about how far she's falling towards the dark side, how far out of balance she is getting because of her feelings towards Zesh. Um, and it finally pushes us into what I thought was kind of a... Uh, I don't know if this was a surprise to me or not. I remember at the end of the issue thinking, huh, that's interesting. Not really being surprised, I don't think, so much as just being like, oh, well, that's how they're going to move our characters to the next stage uh, of their characterization. Because the last scene, as the battles are going on, is that scene that Mark mentioned where Trill is basically searching for Zesh. And she sees a basically a force shadow of Zesh behind her, shoots it, and then he appears out of nowhere, essentially grabbing her, basically saying, you know, what? wait, you can't connect to the force. You know, what did you see? And for a second there, I was like, wait, what? Of course, realizing, oh, okay, the fact that she can't touch the force, that's supposed to be part of her cover. Okay, because they really didn't emphasize that before. And she plays the, you know, please help me, you know, the, the I need your protection type of character because Seknos isn't around. And he, thanks to his connection to her previously and that sense of not really knowing who she is, but, you know, wanting to see her protected, goes with her as they seek out an entrance into the Rakatan facility. And they find that, again, it's not that the Rakatans are eating the captives. They've been enslaved. But being enslaved, if you're a force user to the Rakatans, doesn't mean you're being enslaved as a worker, as the case was with so many other species. If you're force-sensitive, you're enslaved by being put in those, like, uh, stasis things, and it looks like they're, like, being fried with force lightning constantly, and it's drawing away um, the force out of them to be used to control the Rakatan technology. Um, and says, you know, take a good look, Trill. This is why we fight the Infinite Empire. This will be the fate of every Jedi if we don't stop the Rakata here. And she zaps him with Force Lightning. You know, yes, it will be. And now she's back inside the Rakatan base, and Zesh is her prisoner. I thought that was a nice twist to end the issue, but I will say that I found myself somewhat taken aback because timing in this story is very loose. There's a lot of, we jump a few minutes or a few hours and don't realize it within the story because the last time we saw Seknos, he was with the large group fighting against the Flesh Raiders and um, he was being grabbed, but we saw the fight still going on and then supposedly while that was going on is when we're seeing Zesh interacting with Trill and yet here they are and once they get inside this Rakatan base, their Seknos already brought in, captured, plugged into a stasis module and being zapped for his force energy. More time must have passed in this battle than it seems like in the issue. And again, it's yeah. another instance where the use of time within this, while serving the story in the big sense, causes some awkwardness in the individual scenes. Yeah, and, and the fact that we see what's happening to the Force users, it reinforces what Zesh had said earlier about Lord Ryo. You know, when he said Lord Ryo's an idiot. Lord Ryo believes lies. Perhaps they will be the lucky ones. The Jedi will be enslaved, but those without the Force will be food. It's usually a quick death, you know, and then when we saw, uh, you know, the, the bad sec, not Seknos, I'm going to say the, I'm going to say it opposite as you. Skullnos. Uh, yeah. Skullnos. Skullnos. When he's sitting there talking to Trill, he's eating and on the table is a head of somebody. I'm like, Ooh. I mean, that's what I mean. Like there's very little of the Rakata's bad right up in your face, but Zesh keeps telling you what's going on. And then you see a scene like that and you're like, Oh yep. There's a head on the table. They are pretty bad people. And you know, the big turning point's going to be what's going to come in issue number three, but we've gone for quite a while here. So, uh, Mark, want to cut it here and then come back next week? That'll also give our folks who are trying to send questions in to SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com for our Q&A episode uh, after we finish Force War another week to send in questions, too. So, what do you think? That sounds like a plan.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. That's right, and of course, we have the Republic Forces Radio Network slash simul-release Rebels Roundtable episodes where uh, the team from Republic Forces Radio Network and soon Mark for the fourth of those episodes, uh, are talking about Clone Wars Season 6. Now, those are going to start hitting the net in late April, and you can get a jump on that by uh, checking out rebelsroundtable.com, which will send you to starwarsreport.com. There will soon be a podcast feed for that show, but that's going to be something that uh, uh, pops up once the first episode is released. But you can already check out facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable to get hooked up with the Facebook page for that new show that is starting. Uh, It was announced back in November. You can also catch up with us on Twitter at rebelsround for that. And if you're interested in the chronology of things, the continuity of things, and my Star Wars timeline goal, and you want to take a second um, to like the page for that to get involved in some of the more, I might say, controversial discussions as such that sometimes come up about continuity and chronology, uh, that can be found on Facebook as well. It is facebook.com slash goal. And as I mentioned earlier, we do have that upcoming Q&A episode coming. Not listener feedback. Not, here's a giant email from someone, here's our response, but send us your questions, Star Wars and non-Star Wars alike, that are quick, pithy questions, maybe a little bit, maybe a paragraph of explanation, but quick, pithy questions, um, and we will be hitting as many as we can in an upcoming Q&A episode. At this point, um, figure that we'll probably be recording that Q&A episode uh, right around, I would say, maybe the 20th or so uh, of April at this point. So keep that in mind. We will be recording that episode very soon if you want to put in your questions. Uh, by the time this episode is released, you probably are down to a matter of days. So send those to us. But if you're already hooked up with our Facebook page, you've had plenty of time to submit those. Yet another bonus of following uh, SW Beyond Films on Facebook. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you are our sponsors, Audible. They have given us a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore Star Wars. You can explore Harry Potter. You can explore Patricia Briggs. It doesn't matter. You can explore it all. And if you find a book you don't like, well, you can exchange it because every Audible member can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever find out the truth behind the Thoyor. Oh, God. Oh, or, or what Miss Rao saw, because I want to know. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the... I don't even like saying it anymore. The defender of the EU... <laughs> Hold on, I gotta say that again. And with me, like... And with me more than Zest's shirt... It's hard to say. And with me more than Zest's shirt... Oh, Zest's shirt. Am I even saying his name right? Say it for me a second. I think it's Zesh. Oh, God, that's gonna be hard. I didn't even try saying that out loud when I wrote it. I wrote it when I wrote it. I turned it into Shaggy. It has been a year since the Rakatan Infinite Empire. Empire?